Okay. So I've been thinking about this quote all week. I wanted to share it with you now. Um, this was offered to me by my friend and teacher, Tuari Salah. Some of you might know her. And it's by Ian McCrory in his book, The Moon Appears When the Water is Still. He's a writer and deep, longtime Buddhist practitioner. My hut is leaking, said the novice, and my stairs are rickety. Wonderful, replied the abbot. There's no need to thank me. <laughs> we get the same food every day, and not enough of it. Excellent. Again, no need to thank me. My hut is too close to the village, and I can hear the festivals. Perfect. No thanks necessary. I keep telling you how terrible everything is, and you keep saying it's wonderful. And it is wonderful. The world just as it is, is all we need to achieve liberation. Misery is the compost for the flowering of Dhamma. Without imperfection, growth in Dhamma would not be possible. In a perfect world, we can attain only complacency. In an imperfect world, we can attain enlightenment. And so here's the snowstorm. No need to thank us. And I think you all passed the test pretty well so far. A lot of graciousness, a lot of flowering of these qualities, just given these conditions here now. So this from Saida Utejaniya. No matter how difficult life becomes, we must keep practicing continuously. This is the only way. Eventually, Wisdom will outweigh greed, hatred, and delusion, and you will begin to gain momentum. New avenues of awareness will open to you. Then you will begin to see and be part of a simpler and less complicated reality that you're not separate from, but is actually nature itself. So I want to share some thoughts about practicing at home and integrating all of what we've been doing here. I think maybe it was six or seven years ago I sat a retreat with Alexis and Pascal. I think it was over the New Year's. And Pascal said something on New Year's Eve in his talk that has stayed with me this whole time. This is what he said. He said, What are we doing here? What's the purpose? It's hard enough, right? He said, we're learning to care for these aching and complex hearts so we can care for this aching and complex world. And I think that's always been so relevant. Isn't it today? Isn't the world so aching and so complex? such a broken and beautiful and grieving and weird kind of world that we're in. 
And just if we, as we've seen, just hearing a few of you speak the fruits of just a couple hours of talking practice, the beauty that's here. It's really like all these seeds have been nascent in us and we're just creating the conditions for those seeds to grow, for compassion and clarity and joy and equanimity kindness, patience, generosity, for all of these qualities to arise in us. One of my favorite stories from the suttas is about Rohitasa. Rohitasa is a very beloved character, I find. Pretty fast-paced. I think we have some fast movers in here, do we? People who like to move fast. So Rohitasa, and the way they present in the sutta, I I like to think of them as non-binary because they're kind of, to me, they're very energized, they're very energetic, fast-paced. They're kind of like Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. And so Rohitasa comes, kind of young energy. He's he's tired. They are tired. (laughs) They're worn out, right? They've been running around. And they come to the Buddha and they say, Buddha, Buddha, I've been running. And I... I've circumnavigated the globe many times, been running and running. And I've been trying to find where is the end of suffering. I keep going around and around. I'm walking very fast. And I can't find the end of suffering. And the Buddha, in all of his wisdom, looks very kindly at Rohitasa and says to them, it's just within this fathom-long body with its perception and intellect, that I declare there is the world, the cosmos, the origination of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the world, right here in this fathom long body. So what does that mean that we have the whole world here? this body that's our vehicle for awareness. So yes, there is a whole world sitting here right in your seat. And also in our collective space, we are being splintered into many, many different worlds. A lot of dominant culture says that we're independent and separate, solid and singular, kind of out on our own. Often it's hard to tell what's true anymore because there are so many divergent truths. Media, the news. All this culture that feels so isolating and so splintery. I think about this often because now we have so much Dharma online. Many of us teach online a lot. And the Zoom boxes, you know, the Brady Bunch Zoom boxes. They feel two-dimensional, but when you look at each of those boxes, what are you not seeing? There's so much world there, so much world encapsulated just right in that box. A little bit seen, but so much unseen world. And I think right here in the sutta from so many years ago, the Buddha is saying, reclaim this body, reclaim this world. 
that you have. You can know it. You can know it to its depth, its truth, its resonance. It's a kind of taking back responsibility for living with whole hearts, integrating all of the layers of complexity that we're called to do nowadays. So this simple act of being aware, gentle continuity of awareness, it really can be a path to freedom. As we keep understanding more and more about this mandala, this world, and how then it interfaces and actually is part of a much bigger mandala, a much bigger world, Thich Hans interbeing. And we start to see that the boundaries are imaginary. Carol so beautifully quoted, I think, in the suttas, or Dhammapada maybe, that says, the defilements are the makers of measurement. I think that's true. Delusion is always kind of setting up all these imaginary boundaries. And they're important too, of course. We don't want to erase our difference. But also, we don't see all of the interweavings and all of the interbeingness of Dhamma. This reminder that we're nature, I think, is a very clear pointer to that. Just all nature, participating, belonging, all of this in nature. So we're learning to care for this aching and complex world so that we can care for the aching, uncomplex world that we're in. And we might hear the simple instructions of relax and be aware, and okay, sounds easy enough. Just be aware. That's all you have to do. But is it so easy? Have you noticed? Anybody find it difficult this week? Some, just some. So we really do have to do what's hard. And that's been a big learning for me is like, how do I show up in a wholehearted way with this practice? And really to look at how everyone admire brings that kind of wholeheartedness to the world. They're not shying away from difficulty. Think about our ancestors and our role models, our teachers. There's a lot of meaning and courage in being willing to show up for yourself in this way. To go out into the world speaking and listening, knowing that it's such an advanced practice and that we can do it. One of my Tibetan teachers says that the third refuge, Sangha, we can see that as our entire environment. Of course, it's the people, it's the practitioners, but can we see every situation, every encounter as our teacher? All beings, all phenomena are arising, are coming into our being, into our perception in order to wake us up. This myriad dance All objects of our awareness, equally valid, helping us create this continuous moment-by-moment mindfulness awareness. Every mind state, 
Saida talks about it like we're gathering data just moment by moment. Everything is our teacher. How would that be to encounter everyone as your teacher? So we've been talking a lot about moha or delusion. And I just wanted to touch a little bit more on this one. This one is harder to see because it's nature is that we don't see it. Delusion. But once we start to, and I've heard many of you say that you are, you're noticing moha. Once we start to, it can be really fun to see what we didn't see before. So my first retreat I did here at IMS, it was a, it was a three month retreat. It was a long retreat. And I was still sort of getting to know the ropes. And in the three month, we have the set schedule like usual, not like this open schedule. And there's a sign up on the board for practice leaders. I think we've had some of you volunteering to lead practice over the week. And in the three month, you sign up for the entire day. So then who's ever the practice leader for that day will start early in the morning and just sit up here for every session and keep track of time and ring the bell. So I didn't really want to do that. It was in my practice. It felt really scary. There's all these lights and things up here. And so I waited for really a couple months. And then there was some one particular day where that volunteer had crossed their name off and there wasn't really anybody else volunteering. And I thought, this would be maybe good practice for me. So I signed up to be a practice leader that one day. I think I sat right up here in the same spot. And from six in the morning, all day long, I swallowed. I could not stop swallowing. (laughs) And I was nervous about sitting up here. It felt like everyone was looking at me. I could feel my body tense. And just the the throat was so tight so tight. It was like really felt like every 30 seconds swallow. And it sounded so loud, (laughs) reverberating throughout the hall. And it didn't stop all day long. Every sit, every sit got up here and I was watching it, but also very aversive to it. So the more I tried to stop it, the more it happened. And the more I also started to hear everyone else swallow. So it was like the symphony of swallows. And then I thought, I had been there for two months already. I had never heard a swallow before. And what is happening now? Everyone just started swallowing today? Or is it because I'm swallowing, right? The whole universe centered around this experience. It was not a good day of practice for me. Very aversive, very self-conscious, so tight. But what I realized, I'm thinking about that story, because even still it sometimes happens for me if that, I'm sitting up here and the throat gets tight, swallow, 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 whatever tension, insecurity happens. But up until then, other sits, I'm not even thinking about swallowing. I don't even know if I was swallowing or not, and I never hear anybody else. So that's a kind of delusion, right? I wasn't hearing it. Was it even happening? I don't know. And so now when I sit up here and get all tight and scared and the throat swallows, I think, I wonder how many people are hearing. (laughs) Because maybe they're not. And that helps just a little bit. (laughs) But that's what delusion is. It's so interesting. We can't hear what we don't hear. And we can't know what we don't know.
the story that Alexis told earlier today, I thought it was actually a different story when he talked about talking to his dad on the phone. He tells another story about being on the cell phone that I'll tell now. (laughs) (laughs) So he was teaching, he was talking about working with the cell phone and the device, and he was saying that sometimes I'll get on the phone and there'll be a difficult conversation with someone. I don't know who he was talking about in particular, but someone difficult, difficult conversation. And he'll be on the phone and just draw the cell phone a little farther from the ear. And the mind goes, oh, so peaceful. (laughs) And then bring the cell phone back so you can hear. And there's all this tension and difficulty again. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) pull it away. (laughs) You can try it. Apparently, there's a lot of peace when you're not hearing the other side of the conversation. (laughs) So delusion. And apparently, it works because if you just ignore your building problem, it goes away. So willful, right? (laughs) We can use it at will. But we just want to be aware. We want to be aware. And I want to talk a little bit about ways we can be. This is one you can, you can catch yourself. We're all going back to maybe talking to colleagues at work and family, friends, partners maybe. Do you ever notice when you're having some kind of contention and you very much feel right, and they very much feel right, do you ever notice how, I think actually that you pointed out to this to me too, how to be in relationship, um, you're so dug in to your position and there's some part of wisdom that's growing because there's awareness there and the wisdom knows it's actually not worth, like I'm really not right or it's not really worth holding my position. But the momentum of the heels dug in is more than the wisdom that knows I can let this go. And so you just draw it out a little bit longer because it's just, there's so much importance of being right. Do you ever notice that? See if you can catch it. There's, it's that lag time. So there's some wisdom growing and there's still some delusion that's pretty wedded to the position. I think Kara last night gave a really beautiful quote about this, that how wisdom is slower sometimes than awareness. So we need to be continuously aware and more and more and more awareness grows momentum. And then... There's enough wisdom that overtakes the delusion and we do something different and we can let it go sooner. Good to practice in a relationship. A whole other function of of understanding delusion has to do with this protective quality that it has. So one of my teachers, Michelle McDonald, tells this story. She lives in Hawaii and she likes to swim in the ocean. And so she was swimming in the ocean one day, and they go, you know, a group of them, and there's a lot of swimmers out there, and it's on the big island, big beach. And one day, there's a lot of swimmers out, but one day, she sort of saw swimmers heading in pretty quickly to the shore. And there's some danger, you know, sharks being in the water, and she's always a little bit aware of that and worried. And so she felt her heart quicken, And she watched the other swimmers kind of make their way in. There's sort of this joint movement towards the beach. And then she said, because she's a longtime meditator, she was swimming, she felt her heartbeat, and then she just felt this shudder 
come down right over her. And she was aware that she didn't know what was happening. And so just because others were going in, she was going heading into the shore, feeling her heart pound. And when she went in, the swimmers were talking, did you see it? Did you see it? And one swimmer was saying, well, I saw the tail, and I saw the fin. And she realized she had been very near to this really large creature. It's obviously a shark. But something in her, to help her keep swimming into shore, not freeze, the shutter fell. She didn't even see it. So this kind of delusion can be really good to notice. It's not something to get rid of. The fight-flight-freeze, you can be aware when you're going into freeze. And that's a really good skill to have, to know you can watch the whole arc of that freeze, feel its kind of pleasant dullness, know that you're in freeze. It will build your continuity of awareness, and you can watch it come out. So you can simply ask, what am I not seeing in this situation? Am I frozen? We often freeze a lot. The world is pretty scary. It's protective. So ask, what am I not seeing? How is delusion functioning in the mind? And what am I assuming about reality? I love this phrase that Carol used, mistaken perceptions and cognitive obscurations. So much of what we assume about reality is not necessarily the case. And that's why these practice groups can be so helpful. I think several of you named it, how joyful it can be to go in and, you know, in silence. Of course, we have all kinds of perceptions about other yogis. I like that person. I don't like that person. Who is that person? We have all kinds of perceptions. And then we go into these groups and we start talking. Have you noticed how those just drop away? It's like, we were so wrong. You're so wrong about a lot of our assumptions. So important to notice. Other ways to get in touch with delusion. Notice when there's a really thick sense of self. And I think we named it often happens when we're with family. For me, it happens a lot at mealtimes. Or when there's a sense of shame, there can be a real thick sense of self and being wrong. We want to notice all this. And several of you really in your, in your check-ins have been so clearly naming that sense working with thoughts, and really trying to understand them. What are these thoughts really? Are they true? What is their nature? And then having the insight, if I understood this thought, I wouldn't be suffering. If I understood nature in a deeper way, I wouldn't have so much dukkha. And that's a really important insight. Oh, it's delusion that's sort of clouding. It's keeping me in this dream state really glued to this dream state that I know through practice isn't really reliable or trustworthy. Another time when 
delusion might be functioning in his mind is when we very much feel self-righteous or that kind of righteous indignation. Just see if there's a kind of delusion in the mind about how things are, a kind of fixed way. And then what else, what other ways of seeing, what other perspectives are here? Often we have kind of a sense that we're not seeing everything, you know, the whole situation or the whole person. And there's just this sense of kind of incomplete experience, like we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. And that's good to watch out for. Just recently, I learned from Gil Franzdahl that another interpretation of the Eightfold Path, you know, we hear Eightfold Path, we hear right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right effort, and right concentration. That word in Pali, sama, which we translate as right or wise, sama, sati, wise, mindfulness, can be interpreted not so much as right or wise, but complete. So how is that to consider a complete view We're practicing this awareness so that our scope widens. We see more completely. Complete intention. Complete action. Can we do it wholeheartedly? Can we engage in life with this wholehearted kind of effort? Can we see the path as one of completion? A kind of completing ourselves, of resting back into the completion of the moment. So we practice some wise speech today, complete speech. What, what is that? A complete kind of way of expressing ourselves. And I've found so much wisdom in the way that Tejaniya talks about this. You know, the way he really gets interested in how we're working with speech. But he really wants to work with the yogis who are working and busy and engaged in the world. And when we bring this kind of wholeheartedness to our speaking and our listening and our relationships, it's so humbling. It's so humbling, right? We see our habits. And we see their momentum and their depth, how they die hard. (laughs) Very persistent, some of them. So one story in the sutta says that speech, this power that we have, it's like we have an axe in our mouth. And if you think about an axe, this tool, what is it used for? Well, it can actually be used for building, right? To get things done. I use an axe to chop firewood in the cabin where I'm living. Very useful. Can do a lot. And an axe can also destroy and do great harm. So that's how much power our words have. And I had a very vivid experience of this, how this is true. Several years back, uh, we were traveling in, I think we were sitting retreat in Germany um, with the 
Saira Utejaniya Sangha there. And we're at the airport. We were at the, at the end of one retreat at the airport getting ready for a very long flight. And I was tired and pretty full of ill will at that point. And I had awareness, because we'd just been on retreat, but I didn't have enough. And I watched this form, this thought form in my mind. And then I was sitting across from my partner. And I knew these words were cruel. And I said them. And I watched them fly out my mouth and land in his body. And I saw the impact, the hurt that happened. So palpable. So clear. And it was so obvious that it was incredibly unskillful because here we were in the airport. We were going to be on the flight to Mexico for like 20 hours. And he was like, oh, we are not speaking. (laughs) We're not talking to each other. So painful. So painful. This is why we really need to practice awareness so that we have enough wisdom to see the thought arise and more and more have the spaciousness and the patience to not yet act. So several principles around mindful speech that I've found helpful. Lead with your presence, your embodied presence. And listen deeply. We've been talking about How one frame for practice is just really deep listening. And sometimes I think about good listening like, you know, a really good parent would. They get down on the same level with their kid and they're just so engaged, so interested. You know, a parent asking, how was your day? And they really want to know. So we can gift ourselves that kind of listening. Such a generosity. Such an act of kindness. Centering the other's experience. And really knowing our bodies, as Alexis was saying. And also, so much curiosity about what's happening with the other person. Tell me, tell me everything. That kind of heart. So we train with ourselves so that we can do it for others. And it can be interesting to watch the results of this kind of speech. When I was really showing up and practicing, you know, we have a lot of verve in our first few years. So when I was listening to Tejaniya so much for a few years and really centering speech practice. And do you know what happened? I spoke so much less. There was just a lot less to say when I was trying to be aware. So a little bit on relationships too, how this practice can benefit. You're all kind of primed up to go back out and be in relation, relationship with others. And it's messy Your loved ones, your people, have had a very different week than you've had. (laughs) And so a lot of faith and uh, 
trust in the process and patience, willingness to be with the mess. Because I also practice in the Tibetan tradition, I find that bodhicitta is very, very helpful as a foundation in relationships. Like, how can we wake up together? I want us to. How can we walk each other home? Find our mutual belonging, the family of things. Very important to find your people. Find your sangha. Then engage in wise speech with them. So this quote, some of you have heard it. It's my favorite. I kind of always tell this quote. By the great Dzogchen master, Dogo Kensei Rinpoche from the last century. This is what he says. It's very, I think him and Saida Utejaniya might have been related. So this is what he says. The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and all emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from life experiences. The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations, all emotions, and all people. So we have to learn about these aching and complex hearts so that we can be open and curious and learning about the aching and complex world. So some of you might know that in March 2020, I guess that was almost exactly three years ago, um, my partner Nico and I, we published a book. And this book, we wanted to write about the precepts. We wanted to write about sila. Because I think we saw, well, we were teaching young people. We wanted to find a way so that they would be accessible and fun for young people. Encouragement around speech and action and how we live in the world. Also, I think because we saw our world um, kind of replete with precepts that were being broken on a large scale. And so we wanted to talk about them, but in a fun way, in an accessible way. And so the way we decided to write it was to take turns with chapters. So I wrote the first chapter, and he wrote the next one, and we kind of took turns with the five precepts. So, of course, the third precept, that one that's about not committing sexual misconduct, I had to write the third, <laughs> that chapter in the third precept. And I went into it kicking and screaming. I did not want to write about this. It was so hard. It was so hard. Mostly because I had that willful delusion. I didn't want to shine the light on that very personal kind of topic. And yet when I did, when we really sat down, and this was a joint process. We really had to process this chapter together and started to name, here are all the pieces that I see when I bring my awareness to this 
pretty complex topic. So much learning. So much learning. And what I had to do was really be willing to turn the light of awareness to all of the ways that were so cruel in this particular arena. The way our culture is cruel about bodies. Right? Bodies are objectified. All kinds of projections. And this sense that we're looking at ourselves from an external regard. I'm so happy we talked about this mirror practice. Because isn't it so painful? There's so much shame that comes. And we have all of this encultured programming around how our bodies are objects to be owned, to be judged, to be controlled. And then the consumer culture makes it even worse because then it's sort of about owning, consuming these bodies. Objectifying, consumerist, And then, oh my gosh, I could talk all night about patriarchy. (laughs) And that's in all of us. So cruel. Power dynamics, the ways that we're programmed to act in these particular social locations. So harmful. So harmful. And so this combination, and this is talking about collective experience, not just in me. And in fact, it was pretty freeing to see, oh, this isn't personal to me. This is the water we're swimming in. Objectification, consumerism, patriarchy, pretty bad mix for then how to live in our bodies in an alive and healthy and ethical way. So it was in allowing myself to see all of that, to name it, to be aware, that actually I was then able to dismantle those narratives, that programming. It was so freeing, actually, to feel like I could live in my body in a different way when I could just see how those chelases were functioning on a collective level and how they'd been internalized. And so we need to see it all with awareness plus wisdom in order to undo a lot of this cruelty that the wa- it's just the water we're swimming in and to learn a different way to transform. So that's maybe one of my favorite parts of the book now is when we talk about taking back our bodies. And that's what the Buddha was saying to Rohitasa. Take back your body. The whole of the world is here. And the end of suffering is right here in your body. Gloria Anzaldúa She says, the struggle has always been inner and is played out in outer terrains. Awareness of our situation must come before inner changes, which then in turn come before changes in society. Nothing happens in the real world unless it first happens in the images in our heads. So what we're doing here is so radical. Do you see how just by showing up in this courageous way for ourselves, we're dismantling patriarchy? (laughs) Did you know that? (laughs) Isn't that kind of awesome? (laughs) But we have to take it out into the world. We have to use all the wisdom that we're growing. So much of this practice is about staying in the body. 
befriending our body, giving our bodies back to nature. And the tricky part is that often our bodies are not necessarily a safe place to be. And so I know for me, the way I found the Dharma was because I was a, I think, freshman in college, pretty, pretty young, and suffering really a lot from these cultural narratives. So much pressure to conform, to perform, straight-A student, really overachieving. And part of that was, I, I was on the crew team, I was a rower on the crew team. A lot of that perfectionism and overachievement was really channeled through into my body. Lightweight crew team, getting weighed before every race, got to make the cut, so much pressure. And so when I read Pema Chodron, who said, there's always this carrot dangling, you're always going for the next best perfect moment, the next best perfect life. It was so commonsensical to me, and I could see, God, I'm so stuck. So much self-criticism, so much striving. And so I really threw myself into that. (laughs) I'm going to be a really good meditator. (laughs) And I I was so stuck in it still. You know, I'd go for these long runs in the mornings. I would come back and I would sit. I would do my meditation for about 10 minutes. And then you do all my sit-ups and push-ups. <laughs> and again, these habits run deep. So that was long ago. I was very young. I still have that tendency in my practice to push, to push and push and push. So we have these, the good fortune to live in these cabins in the wilderness in Oregon. And... My first cabin retreat I did was about 10 years ago, and still these habits, oh my gosh. I went in, very determined. I was going to be there for six months. I had a lot of support, very lucky. And I was going to really do a good job because all these people were there to support me. They were like doing groceries and things. It was so, this whole community. And so I felt so much pressure, and I sat down with my teacher, and we made up this very traditional retreat schedule, 3 a.m. in the morning, wake up do long practice, chanting, bowing. Every day was totally, it's not like this schedule at all. It was every day was partioned out. Do this, then this, then this, only half hour break for breakfast, da-da-da-da-da, just so like boom, boom, boom. And oh my goodness, it was only about two weeks in when I just completely fell apart, melted down, crumpled on the floor, and I just said to myself, I can't stay here for six months. I cannot do this. And so you know what I found? That is when I found all of the recordings from Sayadaw on Dharma Seed. And there was part of me that knew I wasn't going to be able to stay unless I radically changed my schedule. But I could not tell my teacher that's what I was doing. And so, just of my own accord, with a lot of guilt and shame, I hung up a hammock between the trees. And I just listened for hours. And all the groups that he was doing. I mean, there's a lot on Dharma Seed. There's so much there you can listen to. I really listened. And it felt like a survival. Like, I'm not going to be able to get through this without his kind of wisdom that was telling me, just know. 
just know what you're doing. It doesn't matter what posture you're in. It doesn't matter how long you sit. It doesn't matter how much you sleep or how much you eat. Just pay attention. It felt so compassionate. So compassionate. And even so, I did that for the whole six months. It's really hammock practice listening to Sayadaw. And I still had all the guilt. I could not tell my teacher. To this day, I haven't told my teachers that that's what I did. (laughs) But because of the practice, I was like, well, knowing guilt and shame, but I'm still going to do this because it's helping me. And that, I think, was really the beginning of deep dismantling, deep transforming all of this programming and all of this harsh kind of practice, striving, striving, striving. It's all here in this fathom-long body. We have to know our own wisdom and trust our own wisdom more than anything else anybody says. My teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, he says, all that we're looking for in life, all the happiness, contentment, and peace of mind, it's right here in the present moment. Our very own awareness is fundamentally pure and good. The only problem is that we get so caught up in the ups and downs of life that we don't take the time to pause and notice what we already have. So we can take the examples of our teachers. Their humor. I said to some people, I think humor is the eighth awakening factor. We really need it. And oh my goodness, all these stories I've heard from Sayadaw at Shwayumin. I'll tell one more. Some of you know this story. So I think Alexis was a monk at the time. And Sayadaw walked by and let out a very large, 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 loud fart. Right? And Alexis sort of looked at like, Saida, do monks fart? Really? And Saida just looked back at him and he said, Dhamma. <laughs> so I've been thinking about that. Anybody else had a little bit of gas this week? I thought, oh, I'd be really good, a good practitioner if I could just gas when we were doing our qigong. <laughs> and I'm not quite there yet, not quite relaxed enough, but it's a, it's a good bar, it's an aspiration. <laughs> so relaxed, right? Everything, just dhamma. The first Tibetan teacher I met, my favorite maybe, Kempo Rinpoche, who is very short and rotund, lovely, lovely teacher. He would give a lot of his three-hour-long talks standing. He traveled around the world teaching for 11 years nonstop, just going from place to place to place. He was on a lot of airplanes, a lot of airports, a lot of major cities. And his translator, who's a friend, said every city, every major city, Rinpoche would say, we have to go to the amusement park. And it was his favorite thing to go on all the really scary rides. <laughs> because he said his awareness was so strong <laughs> in all those rides. So much joy. So much love of the world. 
right? Can we fall in love with this aching and complex world? Can we practice so, so wholeheartedly because what other skillful response is there in our situation right now? What else is there to do? So, so much respect and gratitude for what you're doing here, what we're doing here together. It's so important and so powerful. I'll just leave you with the words of Toku Orgen Rinpoche, another wonderful Dzogchen master. He says, foremost, I would like to tell you that an enlightened essence is present in everyone. It's present in every state, both samsara and nirvana, and in all sentient beings. There's no exception. Experience your Buddha nature, your awareness. Make it your constant practice, and you will reach enlightenment. In my lifetime, I have known many, many people who attained such an enlightened state. Awakening is not an ancient fable. It's not mythology. It actually does happen. Bring the oral instructions into your own practical experience. And enlightenment is indeed possible. It's not just a fairy tale. So we can just sit quietly for a moment or two. Bring the oral instructions into your own practical experience. And enlightenment is indeed possible. It's not just a fairy tale. <laughs> 